This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian King-Cargyle. I'm a writer, a science lover, and director of NIU's STEM Read. This episode is a Halloween bonus. We're talking about fake ghosts and meddling kids. Our guests are archivist and dime novel expert Sata Prescott, one of the authors of the new YA series Daphne and Velma, Morgan Baden, and author of Meddling Kids, Edgar Contero. It might seem hard to believe right now, but America has a deep-seated literary tradition of rationalism. Long before the Scooby Gang pulled a rubber mask off a fake monster, there were scores of dime novels and pulps featuring smart, competent characters who could debunk even the spookiest of spooks. In early American literature, especially in its consumable pop culture, the dime novel, heroes trusted in science to save themselves. They explained away flying specters as greedy robber barons using phosphorescent paint and pulley systems. They bucked the European tradition of melancholy souls speaking across time. In this episode, we're going to talk to authors and experts who explore, update, and even upend our traditions of fake ghosts and meddling kids. Our first guest is Sada Prescott, NIU Library's Albert Johansson Project Director for Nickels and Dimes, one of the largest online collections of dime novels in the world. After that, we'll talk to authors Morgan Baden and Edgar Contero. Here's my interview with Sada Prescott. I am Sada Prescott. My official title is research associate or assistant, but I tend to be called the Albert Johansson Project Director. Mostly this means that I work with a large-scale grant-funded digitization project making dime novels from the 19th century available online, free for anybody to access. Now, dime novels are, I like to think of them as comics granddaddies. They are among the first mass market junk literature or cheap consumable literature. So these have sensationalist stories and are sort of the birthplace of early genre in American literature. Okay. And we're talking about ghosts today. So what have you found about ghosts and the supernatural in your dime novel research? So one of the first things that I started being captivated by when I started on the project were the illustrations, of course. The illustrations on dime novels, even in period, were said to be worth the price of the book itself, even more than the story within. So at first I started finding wonderful pictures of monsters. Uh, There's a really notable one of of a werewolf figure. So I started finding all the monsters I could. And along the way, the number one pictures of monsters uh, that I saw were ghosts. And a good ghost story is always excellent to find. So I started collecting all of the ghost stories I could find. Now, some of them were just tagged ghost story. Some of them would have some spooky figure on the cover in translucent white Some would be titled like The Spectral Riders or Ghost of the Plains. And so I started just reading all of these that I could find. 
So what I found was that the ghost stories in dime novels don't really operate like I'm used to ghost stories working even in contemporaneous like Gothic literature, British Gothic literature. Because in British Gothic literature, they're usually actually a ghost. There is some tinge of actual supernatural present, or at least there's a question that the ghost could exist. While in most of the dime novels, there is no ghost and you're stupid for thinking there was a ghost. <laughs> Only we smart people knew that that was really just the really great trapper and his ability to sneak through the underbrush. So that's sort of where I started being very interested in how dime novel ghost stories work. I think that's funny. <laughs> you're dumb if you think there's ghosts. That's that. So you mentioned it a little bit, but how did this deviate from what was happening in other literature and in European literature? So European literature of the time, when it has a supernatural element, it tends to be like this literary, beautifully crafted thing. And it tends to comment on the emotional being of the characters in the story. But in dime novels, well, number one, the characters are very flat, straightforward, melodramatic tropes are very prominent. And so the ghosts tend not to be an element of emotion so much as a descriptor for which characters are the good guys. Number one, the ghost isn't real, or at least very rarely real. There are some real ghosts, but for the most part, the ghost isn't real. And it's someone doing something to intentionally make someone else spooked in order to achieve some plot point. In the digitization lab, we call them Scooby-Doo mysteries, essentially, because that is the basic format. There are some scared people. There is some kind of investigative body who doesn't believe in the ghost existing. And then we find out that the ghost is crafted from some kind of mechanical apparatus or disguise, or in some cases, it's just somebody who's very skilled, so they could not possibly be that skilled in real life, so it must be a ghost. <laughs> okay, so why do you think that this came about as an American way of looking at ghosts at the time? There's a wonderful book about American fairy tales, or rather, American folk stories tends to be the term, since we don't have things that can really be called fairy tales most of the time. But it, it that book looks at American folk stories and British fairy tales. And the basic conclusion is that British stories emphasize the natural world being in control and the human element not being in control. So at the whims of accident, fate, and other entities' desires. While American folk stories and I'd argue American cultural in general, tends to be much more focused on the rugged independence and capability of the individual. And I would suggest that just as that holds for our folk stories, it holds for our genre fiction as that started developing. Our early genre fictions are westerns with cowboys, rangers, and wild landscape conquerors. Detective stories in which a clever individual identifies the reality of a secret situation, although dime novel detective stories don't look quite like your average Sherlock Holmes, and supernatural stories in which one genius person exceeds the abilities 
thought possible by those surrounding them. So there's very much that capable, competent individual at the heart of these kinds of stories. So very different from the caught in the thrall of fate that tends to show up in more European fiction. That's interesting. And I wonder if it plays into then later genres, you know, that idea in science fiction of that ideal man who is, uh, you know, completely (laughs) capable in any situation, you know, on earth or in the stars. Yeah. The so-called Heinlein man is (laughs) that whole thing. So (laughs) Dime novel heroes are definitely heroes, and dime novel villains are absolutely villains. Its source is definitely melodrama. And even in the later periods of these early pieces of fiction, that doesn't change very much. I mean, like I said, these are the precursors to, well, first pulps and then eventually comics, where, again, your superheroes are very, very super, and your your villains are utterly vicious. These aren't just the right thing to happen because the plot needs it to happen. But these are the moral imperatives that must be followed. And in terms of the dime novels and the ghost stories that are in the dime novels, whenever somebody is faking a ghost to spook others, they are definitely a villain who deserves to be taken down. What are some of the craziest kind of gags that people use to fake ghosts? So the ways in which the ghosts are faked is particularly interesting as they are all explained in such scrupulous detail. The technologies essentially are outlined such that they aren't necessarily possible, but the commitment to the bit that they are possible (laughs) is very earnest. The most common things that show up are trapdoors by which um, figures appear, like in the fireplace. There's There are at least three stories I can think of off the top of my head where there's a trap door under the fireplace so that somebody appears in the fire. There are stories in which there are ropes that are hooked throughout a cavern to show that this individual is flying through space and complex panes of glass that disguise walls or rather not walls so it appears that that flying figure is moving through the wall of the cave and very popular also is phosphorescent paint in which the clothing and skin of the individual will be coated in a glowing substance that does not necessarily behave like accessible phosphorescent materials behaved at the time (laughs) but Fine, they are glowing, and that is why they are so spectral. But my absolute favorite was the spectral riders, in which the townsfolk are terrified of the skeletons riding horses out in the plains that nobody can catch. And because of a very complex revenge plot, one man killed some bandits who did him wrong, cleaned their bones and wired the bones back together so they looked like skeletons, and then wired those skeletons to a bunch of wild horses, and put saddlebags on the horses with a note in the pocket explaining that he did this, (laughs) so that when our hero finally finds the horse with the skeleton attached to it, he's able to say, I figured it out because this note told me so. (laughs) Well, that's handy. (laughs) Isn't it? (laughs) 
And of course, uh, the cover for this one is phenomenal with these these terrifying skeletons riding horses, and they're even up in the sky. They're not even attached to the ground. Just so you know, it's like seriously spooky. <laughs> That's awesome. And I think you found that there was a difference too between like male ghosts and female ghosts, that they had different agendas based on their gender. Yes. So first off, there are far fewer female ghosts than male ghosts, but that follows the proportion of how many female characters are present in an adventure story versus how many male characters. I haven't number crunched the specifics, but it's not shocking that there would be fewer women. But what is shocking is that the women ghosts are usually the real ghosts, the actual spooks of the dead, while the male ghosts are almost always the Scooby-Doo ghosts. So the, the male ghosts, if they're not real, they're achieving their plot, be it revenge or in finding the right inheritance or any of those normal, like, sensationalist 19th century story goals. When the males are real ghosts, at least of the ones that I found so far, they tend to actually be violent. They're still trying to achieve their goals, but it's usually through, you know, murder. But the women... When the women are ghosts, they tend to be bringing information to our main characters. There's a really notable one, and the lady ghost in that one keeps appearing on a cruise ship, and then when our characters finally get to their destination, she starts appearing on the land, and she brings our heroes to a location where her body and her illegitimate baby were entombed, along with their vast fortune, by the bad people. So the lady ghosts are instructing where the keys to the puzzles are. I don't want to say they are helpful, per se, but they're not aggressive, violent beings. They tend to just be indicators of what has happened in our sad, sad story. Hmm. I wonder how that plays in with some of the ways that <laughs> women were marginalized in these stories going forward. It also seems to at least align with like the idea that women could never commit murder or crime because they're the gentlefolk, sort of a positive variant of marginalization, or at least positive emotions, not good ways to discriminate. But right. But they're but they're the victims more often than exactly they they don't have the capacity for violence right so I, I think that is another thing we should talk about so because of the time that they were written there's a lot of uh, material in dime novels that would not be considered acceptable today I mean deeply deeply racist and horrific <laughs> absolutely that's one of the best things about them is that it's incontrovertible proof that the people reading these, the day-to-day -day people, just sort of, you know, accepted these viewpoints as the standard starting point. Like, there are several stories that just don't make any sense unless you have these basic preconceptions about how one race or the other operates, how one gender or the other operates. And honestly, like, when I was starting working with these projects, the sheer level of assumed racial difference and incapability of non-white races had not really sunk in for me, a white person living in 21st century U.S., even with education, knowledge, and reading the canon and the classics of the same time period. 
but when you when you start reading many dime novels, you start understanding what perspectives were standardized. In terms of just these ghost stories, the most common thing that I noticed was that of the ghost stories that are trapper-oriented or woods-oriented, usually the manner in which the Scooby-Doo ghost operates is it's usually just a white man who is scary to native people because he's capable of being in the woods. And so is terrifying all of the local native people by being white and competent. That is a shocking dependent point for a whole plot to turn on. Yeah. When there was uh, like the greatest frequency of these ghost stories and these kind of specifically debunking ghost stories was around the same time of spiritualism yes. and the kind of that spiritualist debunking. So let's talk about that. What I tend to think about when I think about spiritualism is in the U.S., it started predominantly as an East Coast phenomenon, and it was very much headed by women in the time period that is the late 19th century and not quite into the 20th century. And the debunking dime novel stories mainly take place in the central U.S. and the West and are mainly about men. Now, this is conjecture, but I suspect that some of the sudden interest in proving all this ghost stuff is nonsense might be in some ways influenced by a desire to push back against a sudden excitement over women's realm having some major influence in culture. Uh, that is my suspicion. At the very least, it means that the talk of ghosts and the dead was more present at this time. So our reading public has more knowledge and interest in ghost things showing up. And you can follow just the frequency of ghosts along a bell curve for when they start showing up the most. And it, it hits right in the same time period. Not unequivocally cause and effect, but certainly correlated. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. You know, and where the stories are situated then, if they're in the, you know, the Midwest and the West, that it, it almost seems like it could also be that pushback against that East Coast. Right, that um, elitism. Yeah. perceived elitism. Right. Like out here in the country, we know that this isn't real and we're going to show you why. Huh? You are sensible down-home individuals and you're just all urban nutcases. <laughs> right. Huh. That's interesting. So why do you think that this American ghost story, this, you know, not a ghost ghost story continues into popular culture to this day? You know, there's still Scooby-Doo movies <laughs> coming out and, you know. We just and, had one, didn't we? Right, we did. So there's this long thread of realism in American literature and in American culture, this confirmation of reality rather than the confirmation of the miraculous. And that's true along our literary history. It shows up a whole lot in our film. We have the Scooby-Doo tradition, of course. And I honestly do believe that it's because of our desire to promote secularism, if not an actual experience of secularism. We search for the rational, the real, and the traditional over the supernatural, miraculous, and novel, meaning new in this case. 
as a very broad generalization culturally. I think that resonates as a distinctive element of our individual capability. We're not putting ourselves in the under the mercies of some unknown fate. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we are capable of altering and dominating the things that perplex us. There's also this this strong through line of being special because you have the special knowledge that no one else has. Everyone's afraid of this thing, but I'm not afraid of this thing because I can see how this operates. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for letting me natter about this thing I like. (laughs) You just heard my interview with Sada Prescott, NIU Library's Albert Johansson Project Director for Nickels and Dimes. You can access the dime novels he referenced and many more fascinating and problematic gems at dimenovels.lib.niu.edu. If you're interested in learning more about dime novels or even teaching with them, you can attend the free online conference Papers for the People Dime Novel Symposium on November 4th and 5th, 2020. Fake ghosts flourished in dime novels, but they booed their way onto TV in 1969 with Scooby-Doo Where Are You, the show that created the Scooby-verse and ruined so many dastardly plans and rubber masks. After 50 years, the Scooby gang is still going strong with new movies and films. One of the newest incarnations is the YA series Daphne and Velma from Scholastic. This is an edgier YA take on the friendship between the female leads. Book one is The Vanishing Girl by Josephine Ruby. Book two is The Dark Deception by Morgan Baden. I interviewed Morgan about the staying power of those meddling kids. With me on the interview is Melanie Koss. Melanie is a member of my own Scooby gang, a frequent contributor to the podcast, and an associate professor of literacy education at Northern Illinois University's College of Education. Here's our interview with Morgan Baden. My name is Morgan Baden, and I'm an author of a few different books for teens, but I actually started off as a ghostwriter, and I have a whole separate career as a communications executive as well. So I spent more than 12 years at Scholastic in the corporate communications department before leaving to pursue my writing full-time. My first novel was a YA that I co-wrote with my husband, who is the best-selling and award-winning author, Barry Liga. It's called The Hive. And now I, I write the Daphne and books. The Dark Deception came out in July, and the next one, still untitled, will be out next summer after being delayed uh, a couple times due to the pandemic. And I live and write in New Jersey. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about uh, the Daphne and Velma series. Sure. So it's really exciting because it's a essentially a YA reboot of Scooby-Doo that focuses on Daphne and Velma. And What I love most about it is when my editor, Beth, asked me to write these books, she said, we're going for Scooby-Doo set in modern day in a town that's very Veronica Mars-like. Like, Like, that's the vibe we're going for. And I was thrilled because (laughs) I love Veronica Mars. I love Nancy Drew. I love anything that has to do with, with ghosts or the unexplained or paranormal girl sleuths. I love anyone who is a, is trying to solve mysteries. 
So I was really excited about it. And, and the trilogy follows Daphne and Velma. They initially start off as high school enemies who were formerly best friends. And then you, you discover through the course of book one why they had such a falling out. But you also get to witness them rebuild their bonds and, and rebuild this friendship that is really central to the whole, to the whole conceit of the story. And each book is both a standalone mystery, so there's something specific to each book that the girls have to solve, but there's also this overarching mystery. A, what happened to the vanishing in the town of Crystal Cove, California, so several hundred years ago when the town was settled, overnight, everyone vanished except for one lone person, and the town is still really grappling with that. That mystery is very present in their lives, in their, in their days, and you see that by the fact that in these books, the characters are very focused on ghosts and the paranormal and the unexplained. So the town itself is really sort of into this idea that there's a, a massive mystery that is paranormal in nature that they will probably never be able to solve, but that the ghosts of that time are still very present in, the, in their present day. So it's that overarching mystery but it's also another slight overarching mystery that you come to find out about in book one, The Vanishing Girl, which is something's up with Shaggy. And the girls are basically tasked with figuring out why their friend Shaggy is being so mysterious, even more mysterious than usual. And it's clear there's something going on in his personal life. And because they're friends with him, they're really trying to figure it out and, and be there for him. But, you know, since it's Scooby-Doo and that world, uh, they're filled with distractions, including Shaggy's family, who has a lot of sort of shady behavior behind it. And then, again, these very present-day real-life mysteries that they have to solve. That's very cool. Yeah, I can't wait to finish reading the books. And I love the idea of the whole trilogy. And yeah, what struck me in the first book was that really that the entire town is founded on this mystery. It sounded very Roanoke, which has always been really yeah, fascinating. So. <laughs> Definitely. And I really, I was really drawn to that. I love a good spooky town where the ghosts and the legend and the lore play this really present part in their day-to-day -day lives. You know, you've got you can create these characters where where they're sort of built around this legend and you know it's just a really interesting the whole atmosphere of it i was really drawn to yeah absolutely so did you watch scooby-doo as a kid absolutely i don't know anyone who didn't but yes i grew up in the 80s and my sisters and my brother and i would watch scooby-doo religiously and it's funny because you know, certainly you grow up and I sort of grew out of Scooby-Doo, but would still kind of come back to it occasionally, so much so that even once in college, I dressed up as Velma for Halloween. And it was just this sort of random last minute costume. I had this great wig. I found an amazing orange turtleneck sweater at a thrift shop. And I was like, this is all coming together beautifully. So, so I got to be Velma. And then it's funny, I have two young kids now, and they're, they're still on the young side, but I keep trying to introduce Scooby to them, but my oldest is still a little too scared, but I really look forward to, to letting them watch that and sort of re-enjoy it together. Yeah, and I think there's so many iterations of it. My kids watch one that takes place all in Crystal Cove, and Fred is yes. obsessed with traps, and it's, it's yes. really funny. Uh-huh. <laughs> It is so, that there's this whole universe of Scooby-Doo and, you know, the various spinoffs and then the live action. And it's such a world that you can get immersed in really easily, which is very cool. It's great to be a part of it. Excellent. Melanie, I think you had some questions about adapting the material for 
the modern day. Yes, I was wondering about the different choices that you made in modernizing the characters and mm -hmm. also why the emphasis was on Velma and Daphne. And will we see more of Shaggy and Fred as the series moves on? Yeah, great question. So I think this sort of modern day tradition of taking iconic characters and rebooting them for present day is exciting anyway for lots of different reasons. I think with Scooby, you know, the brand is really universal and still super accessible. So that, I found that really compelling. And with Daphne and Velma, you know, in particular, I believe teenage girls will save the world. And so I have this particular affinity for writing about and for teenage girls. And it's really neat to have two already existing characters who have so much material and, and backstory to them already and being able to take them and just sort of make slight tweaks to make them a little bit more modern and really explore with them in these new contemporary ways. And it's really cool that the, you know, like I said, there's so much backstory already in existence, but, but to be able to, to imagine or envision new ways that they would move about in the world today was really fun to do. And, you know, with Fred and Shaggy and of course Scooby, it is true. And I think you'll see, I just turned in book three recently, which as I said, is coming out next summer. And one of the first notes when I started to write book three was, we have to have more Fred and Shaggy in this one because fans were really reacting to it. And I think people really missed them. And so they have a much more significant presence in book three, which was also equally fun to write in very cool ways. But yeah, the four of them plus Scooby, they're a gang. And so I think they work really well together. And I think if you follow the arc of the trilogy, you'll be happy to see how they're infused a little bit more going forward. Good. I'm excited because I'm very intrigued by the glimpses of those characters that we're getting. And I would love to see a little bit more of their backgrounds fleshed out. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the fleshing out of Daphne and Velma. One of the things I'm noticing as I'm reading through the series is the diversity that's very subtly and authentically woven in and the economic backgrounds. Yeah, for sure. So to clarify, I wrote book two, The Dark Deception, and book three, a different author named Josephine Ruby wrote book one. So she laid a lot of the groundwork, of course, for figuring out who Daphne and Velma were in this modern day sense, established their backgrounds in really great ways, working with Warner Brothers, working with Scholastic to incorporate all the modern elements that needed to be incorporated. So like everyone else, when I read book one, I actually had a Word document of book one that I had to read before I started on book two because book one wasn't out in stores yet. So we were sort of working on it simultaneously. And I found myself just sort of continually going back to the manuscript of book one to be like, how did Josephine do this? Oh, right. That's a really great way of elevating the diversity, for example. So it's funny because I think Velma in particular is, is probably who you're talking about in terms of the diversity. So her mom is an immigrant and that really lends itself to this feeling that Velma has of being an outsider because in Crystal Cove, her mom is treated very much that way, even though she spent years and years there and has done so much good for the town. But I think that bleeds into Velma's sort of self-characterization as a, an outsider, a rebel, a loner, which is really a core part of her personality in these books and figuring out ways for her to break down walls and, and build friendships and, and not feel so alone and isolated all the time. And we also see that, of course, with the sort of 
undercurrent of bisexuality that exists in, in, in this trilogy, which is that the hex girls, which are a fan favorite. So I get a lot of feedback about every hex girl scene and they're super fun to write. But Thorne from the hex girls seems to have quite the crush on Velma. And that was really fun to read in book one and then really super fun to expand on in books two and three. And I would have to say what I love most about it and what I love most about how Josephine set it up in book one, The Vanishing Girl, is that it's super organic. And it's like, none of it is a big deal. Like, of course, there's diversity in, of, of all kinds in, in this town. So even though, you know, classically speaking, Scooby is a for white kids, um, it's, it's, I think it's been updated to reflect the demographics of America in a really organic way. So why do you think that this whole idea of Scooby-Doo in the world of Crystal Cove still resonates today? It's so fascinating to watch. It's really, there are certain brands that are universal and that continue to, to attract audiences and to speak to them, no matter what kinds of changes those demographics have undergone or what kinds of changes society has undergone. And it's amazing that Scooby-Doo is one of them. And again, just really interesting to, to watch and to try and figure out. I personally think for a couple of reasons. One is that these characters are sort of classic archetypes. And I think most people can find a little bit of themselves in all or most of them. And so that makes it fun to watch, right? We all have a little bit of each character in ourselves that comes out at different times. I would also say the other thing is, you know, Scooby, the brand itself is all about Yes, unmasking mysteries, unmasking ghosts, solving issues that seem to be unsolvable or seem to be terrifying and and doing so with a real sense of humor. And I think it's that humor and that sort of silliness, that lighthearted tone that Scooby usually has, even though it's set, especially when you look at the classic cartoons, they're set in this very gothic world, crumbling castles and long meandering dark hallways, and you never know what kind of ghost is going to pop out. But it's all done with this very light atmosphere. So even though visually it's super dark and gothic, there's like slapstick elements that make it super accessible. As a kid, I oddly was really into paranormal. So like my favorite movie as a kid was Children of the Corn. So so there's just a lot of like, I'm just very drawn to ghosts and horror stories and things like that, even still to this moment. And Scooby was just a very safe way of exploring those those kinds of ideas. And I think people still feel that way today. It's really remarkable to find a brand that still speaks to, to audiences so many years later. Yeah, it's, it's kind of that gateway horror, huh? <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I spent so many years at Scholastic, which publishes these books, but also, of course, which created Goosebumps by R.L. Stein. And we spent a lot of time talking about how Goosebumps really was the, the entryway for a lot of kids a, to, to get interested in reading at all, but B, to explore these sort of scary ideas, which are really metaphors for the world at large, right? The world is big and scary, and as little kids, it feels overwhelming. And these books are sort of guides for helping you safely explore that kind of fear and have a resolution. And that's the other thing I've always loved about Scooby Too, of course, is the resolution at the end. You figure out what actual real human was causing all the terrifying mysteries. And it's mostly not paranormal. And so you get this nice, this scary story that's a metaphor for the world and how kids feel about the world. And then it's all really tied up nicely at the end in a safe bow. But you've had laughs along the way and you've had like those, those thrills and chills along the way. 
So we've been talking with some different experts about this American tradition of these fake ghosts, right? And this idea <laughs> that science and rational thinking are going to solve things in the end. So how do you uh -huh. see that playing out in Scooby-Doo? And what are some things that you think as the writer of these stories, both, you know, creating the mystery and, and solving the mystery for your readers, what do you think they can take away from it in terms of STEM and problem solving? Yeah, that's a great question because I think I'm also a big X-Files fan. And so that push and pull between the skeptic and the believer I wanted to reflect some of that in these books as well, just like book one did. So I think the idea that reading Scooby or watching Scooby, reading Daphne and Velma, can really allow someone to explore those ideas, like I said, in a safe manner, but using science and rational thinking to get to the ultimate explanation feels very safe but also exciting at the same time because science is really exciting, right? So particularly with book one, when we talk about the mystery, which I won't reveal because of spoiler alert, but it's a very clean cut scientific explanation. And you don't get that twist until close to the end. And that's super satisfying, right? But it was fun to watch to sort of set up Daphne and Velma against the rest of Crystal Cove. So it's less so that, you know, Daphne plays the Scully role and, and Velma plays the Mulder role. It's not like that. It's more like they're both aspects of Scully and Mulder, but they're up against what the town believes, which is this immediate inclination to blame paranormal rather than to face up to the fact that something's not right in Crystal Cove and they have to figure it out and they can use science to do so. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you bring up the X-Files. I love the X-Files too. And I've just had a lot of people that I know in both in writing and in science have talked about that being such a major influence. Like the Scully effect is something that I don't know if you're familiar with that, but this idea that many women who have advanced degrees in science now watched X-Files as a kid and were influenced uh -huh. by that. So exactly. do you see <laughs> Velma as one of those characters who could, you know, be that entryway into that science and mystery solving? Yeah, I love that. That's a great way to, of putting it. And here's where I confess that when I dressed up as Velma for Halloween in college, it was because I had the wig from dressing up as Scully the year before. <laughs> and they're almost identical wigs when you uh -huh. think about it. But I love that idea. You know, Velma is the, yeah, she's very rational in the books. She sort of rolls her eyes a lot at the paranormal discussions that people around her have. I think there's a really great moment in book two where she and her mom are having a discussion and she sort of grumbles about the gullibility of the people of Crystal Cove. And her mom essentially talks some sense into her and puts almost a scientific spin on why people are gullible about paranormal activity. So, and I, so I think that sort of loops it back around. But yeah, I, I could definitely see Velma as an, as an entree into science and into more discussions around STEM. See, awesome. I dressed up as, as Daphne once because my hair, well, <gasps> no, it's not. Yes. Because of the hair, what used to be red, it grew yes. red. Now, as I get older, it wasn't, and I wanted to be Velma, and I got stuck with that. Oh, uh, oh, and that's actually really interesting because I feel like most girls say they want to be Daphne, but they feel like a Velma on the inside. You know, no matter what they look like on the outside. So that's really interesting. Yeah, Velma's made a comeback for sure. 
I do think that you should make that your author photo, though, the picture of you as Velma. Yes. <laughs> That's a great idea. You know what? Actually, Halloween is next weekend. I should get the whole family dressed up. I do not even think of that. <laughs> well, if you idea. do, we want to see those pictures. We want to see those. Got it. I will do. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. You just heard our interview with Morgan Baden, author of Scholastic's Daphne and Velma novel, The Dark Deception. Book three in that series releases next summer. Thanks again to my favorite Velma, Melanie Koss, from NIU's College of Education for participating in the interview. One of my favorite recent horror novels takes a different view of a Scooby-style gang of junior detectives. That book is Edgar Contero's Meddling Kids. Yes, our plucky teen detectives solved the mystery of Sleepy Lake and caught the man in the rubber mask. But was that really the end of the mystery? Why do they wake up with nightmares 12 years later? Why can't they get their lives together? Why are there monster-sized holes in their memories? This book is a fun, freaky take that blends modern-day fake ghosts with ancient Lovecraftian terror. I was very excited to hear the author's take on everything from American rationalism to the problematic nature of H.P. Lovecraft's iconic works. Here's my interview with Edgar Contero. Thank you so much for joining us today. I love meddling kids, (laughs) and I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Did you watch Scooby-Doo or similar shows growing up? Uh, Absolutely, I did. Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? The first incarnation in particular called me when I was a kid. And what drew you to those types of stories? Back then, as a child, it was definitely the monsters. I'm not a big fan of horror now, but as a kid, I would take like anything with skeletons and, and, and castles with pointy towers. I, I loved horror for kids because it's colorful and, and not so much horror for adults. <laughs> okay. And who were your favorite characters? Well, in Scooby-Doo, it was Scooby, for sure. Uh, he's a very... I mean, think, I think he's a fascinating hero who is always scared, and yet the kids always root for him. I, 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 I don't even know how that works psychologically, how they designed that, but, but it works, and it works amazingly. So where did the idea for meddling kids come from? Usually, my book ideas are the collision of two half-formed ideas. First, I had read a lot of Lovecraft and, and his pen pals, and I wanted to try to write my own take on the Cthulhu mythos. And then there was another idea where I wanted to talk about teen detectives who in adulthood are still haunted by a case that, you know, that was a little over their pay grade. There was something darker than they had usually faced. And uh, at some point I decided that these two ideas complemented each other, that the, the case that, that, that could haunt them was something that they believed to be a man in a mask, but was something much more eldritch. So how did you want to update or subvert that type of story, that Lovecraftian type of mythos and the characters we saw in Scooby-Doo Adventures? Well, the team I thought at the beginning was not even Scooby-Doo. When I pitched this to my editors, it was more like Enid Blyton plus Lovecraft. But they told me that they didn't know who Enid Blyton is, and that's when we changed the pitch on the go. But um, I remember that I conceived it as, uh, as an update to The Famous Five, and in the famous five by Enid Blyton, there was only one character of the five who had some personality. That was George, the tomboy. 
So from the beginning, I knew that I would base my lead on that archetype. I would have a butch woman who is more brown than brains, and I would build her team all around her. Like in, uh, in the Scooby gang, there were two girls and two boys. I was going to have two boys and two girls too. They had Velma, the brainiac, and then danger-prone Daphne. Uh, my female lead was Andy based on the famous five. So uh, that meant that the other woman had to be both Velma and Daphne. And I, I built the whole team around Andy Rodriguez, my own, you know, my, my butch uh, lesbian lead. Yeah, I think it's such a cool book. And I do love the way that you played with the whole idea of the characters. And I, I love the way that you personify Carrie's hair. <laughs> <laughs> that it's like it has googly eyes on it i just that's what when i think about the book i just think about her hair as the uh, her hair. yes it's, it's like the sixth character in the team mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so if scooby was your favorite character so tim is not a talking dog right so you still have that level of realism how did you want you know tim to reflect scooby well again because I started from the Famous Five, and in the Famous Five, the dog was fairly normal. I mean, smart, but he couldn't talk. I never even considered that the dog could talk. Then again, I mean, Scooby is a very interesting character in that he's, if you think of it, he's a fairly realistic dog for animation standards. I mean, he still walks on all fours. He's, he has a very dog-like face. He talks in a way, but not too good and most usually the plots do not rely on scooby conveying information verbally mm-hmm. so it's uh, you know it's 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 a very non-personified character and and yet he always is the one i guess that people empathize sympathize more with it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting you know you can choose between four people and a dog and yet most people go for the dog also because you know the four people were a little shallow most of them but i think scooby is like is amazing in, in, in character design and in writing. I think he's very well designed. What about the Lovecraftian legends then? The Lovecraftian legend, I mean, the thing about the Cthulhu mythos is that I consider it a sort of, you know, like an, an open source corpus of material. You can borrow from them for, you know, for credibility, but you don't need to, to abide by any rules that they said because there weren't really any rules. It was just, you know, it was just a, a gang of writers and friends making up monsters and, you know, and throwing jokes to each other. So I enjoyed that freedom. That's it. I, I didn't pay much attention to the rules. I didn't even try to update that kind of thing because it was, it's, it's a thing born of, you know, very ancient prejudices. And I wanted to leave it like that. That's why it's evil in a way. Yeah. You know, you talk about the rules of Lovecraft and how that didn't, matter. I love that the creatures that you created still abide by some of our laws of science. So for example, they breathe carbon dioxide and people experience hypercapnia when they're around. So why did you decide to include that detail? Yeah, to be completely honest, I don't know where that idea came from. Carbon <laughs> dioxide thing, I have no idea. And, and it becomes such a big plot point, but I don't know why I put it in in the beginning. I can tell you for sure that it was probably a decision born out of aesthetics, so to speak. Like, I probably wanted to make sure that the monsters were elusive at first, that the woods weren't crawling with them. So I probably came up with this thing where they could only come to the surface when the lake expels some carbon dioxide, something like that. But uh, it was probably a decision that wasn't 
planned at the beginning. I can tell you one thing is like I never over research this kind of things. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. You know, because I focus on science and science outreach that I was like, yes, this is such a good detail. And it does come back so much with Sleepy Lake. And when they go down into the mines, it's just so well done. You know, if you want proof that it wasn't very well researched, I remember that we had a big scare when we were like, I don't know, the second set of proofs or something like that. Like we were very close to going to press. And some copy editor at Doubleday caught something about that, a plot hole, science-related, that pretty much destroyed the whole final act as we had it. And we had to rewrite something like very quickly because of that. That shows you how little I research this thing. <laughs> I find that people who write science fiction, there's, there's kind of two groups. The group that researches everything yes. and the group that researches just enough to make sure Absolutely. it's not totally wrong. <laughs> there is no middle ground. And I, you know, I, I never let fact uh, ruin me a good story. <laughs> Are there any other popular shows that influence your writing? Like any other science fiction or, or fantasy works that you consider really influential? Because I wasn't thinking and on Scooby in particular when I started, I was thinking in an Enid Blyton, and the thing is that I think it, it's, it's easy to switch from one another, from Famous Five to Scooby-Doo, because, you know, the composition of the team of the same, because it pretty much shows that it's a formula. It's very basic. Everybody has grown up with this kind of story, this teen detective story. I found out while researching, I found out that there was, like, Enid Blyton's all over. Enid Blyton was British and started in, in the 1940s writing teen detective novels. They were not too popular when I was a kid, but they were in Spain because Annie Blyton was very conservative and her values had fallen out of fashion already in the 80s, but not in Spain because, you know, because Spain was a little backwards back then. But I've noticed that in, you know, in Germany, in Sweden, they all had this local author that specialized in this kind of teen detective stories and every language produces its own. In America, it used to be the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drews, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's not specifically about the show or this book. It's just, you know, it's a formula that we've seen throughout the 20th century, really. The Scooby formula was so very widespread. It's just like, you know, it's like one variation on the recipe. Yes. Well, I've been talking with other experts about the idea of American rationalism and the literary tradition of fake ghosts that can be explained by science. So in your story, science can only take the characters so far. As someone who grew up outside of the United States, how were your stories and your folktales different? And how did you want your work to respond to or subvert that idea that there's always a reasonable, logical explanation for the unknown? Well, first, let me say that I've lived in the United States the last three years, and it is kind of hard to believe that rationalism and trust in science were ever a core value to this country. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My impression right now. But um, that said, I think that a lot of people outside the U.S. live exposed to American media, American storytelling. I have all my life. It's one of the reasons why I came here. So I can hardly tell which part of my stories is American-influenced anymore. And personally, I am not even a big fan of the fake ghosts motif. I consider myself a rationalist, but I want real ghosts in my stories. In fact, I kind of missed real ghosts in my life. My first novel in English was The Supernatural Enhancements, and it dealt with this, this sort of sad philosophy. It was about 
sad rationalists who pine for something that science can't explain because they miss it. There's a type of story I love, and it's the one where uh, the ghost is real, the supernatural is real, but there is still a mystery plot to it. And I've tried for my horror novels, Supernatural Enhancements and Meddling Kids, both to follow that pattern. The monsters are real, and we established that fairly early, but that doesn't mean that all logic goes out the window. You know, there's still a mystery of why the ghosts or monsters are there, who brought them, how, and that's what the detectives have to solve. And I think that's, you know, I, I get the best of both worlds. I get the escapism of fantasy and also the pleasure of solving a puzzle. I love that. I think that's very true, that we're living in interesting times where America likes to see itself as rational as a group of people who can't be duped. And <laughs> Yeah, and yet, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, those were my big questions. Is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you wanted to share? The only thing that I could comment on is that I'm surprised that, you know, Meddling Kids is already three years old and I'm still, you know, I'm still being asked questions about it, which is, I mean, books don't usually have this long a shelf life and I'm very happy for that. <laughs> well, I'm excited to share it with more people because I just, I love the book and I was talking recently to one of the writers that is working on the new Scholastic series, Daphne and Velma, which is a YA update. And I said, have you read Meddling Kids? And she was like, I just found out about it and I'm so excited to read it. So, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it tapped into something that people hold very dear. So I'm very glad for that. You just heard my interview with Edgar Contero, author of Meddling Kids, The Supernatural Enhancements, and This Body's Not Big Enough for the Both of Us. As you can see, the tradition of fake ghosts and meddling kids is alive and well in pop culture. Every iteration brings fresh views, new gags, and gateways into safe exploration of STEM and the supernatural. As for the tradition of American rationalism and our trust in science, that remains to be seen. Just like the Scooby Gang, the Famous Five, and all those competent dime novel heroes, the villains we're fighting still seem to be grifters and industrialists. Only now they're refusing to wear masks. Here's hoping we all embrace our inner Velma and think our way out of our problems. Until then, stay safe, support science, and have a happy Halloween. This is the Stem Read Podcast. Thanks to my guests, Sada Prescott, Morgan Baden, and Edgar Contero, and thanks to my frequent contributor, Melanie Koss. You can find more information on our experts and their work in our show notes. The STEM Read Podcast is produced in association with WNIJ. Support for the STEM Read Podcast comes from NIU STEAM and Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. Thanks for listening. <laughs>